0: Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lithub Radio.
1: Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6 1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now.
2: Hello, and welcome to Book Dreams, the podcast for everyone who loves books, and this is English Class. I'm Julie Sternberg, author of a number of children's books, including Like Pickle Juice on a Cookie and
0: Summer of Stolen Secrets. And I'm Evie Hallam. I'm also a children's book author. My books include The Truth According to Blue and Cast Off, The Strange Adventures of Petra de Winter and Bram Broen. In each episode of this podcast, we consider a book-related topic. And in this episode, we consider what would it be like to treat your favorite book as sacred?
2: Our producer, Gianfranco Lentini, deserves credit for this episode idea. He brought to our attention that there's a new book out called Praying with Jane Eyre, Reflections on Reading as a Sacred Practice by Vanessa Zoltan.
0: We heard the title and we were both intrigued. Well, I mean, who wouldn't be? (laughs) Jane Eyre, sacred. So in this book, Vanessa uses her training from Harvard Divinity School, including her knowledge of the reading practices of medieval monks and rabbinic scholars, to glean spiritual guidance from the pages of Jane Eyre, as well as from Little Women, Harry Potter, and The Great Gatsby. She also shares simple techniques for reading any favorite work as a sacred text.
2: You might know Vanessa from her podcast, Harry Potter and the Sacred Text, which has more than 16 million downloads, or her podcast, Twilight in Quarantine, which was named by the New York Times as a podcast to help you stave off loneliness during the pandemic, and Hot and Bothered, which is another podcast that treats reading and writing romance novels as a sacred practice. Vanessa is also the CEO and founder of Not Sorry Productions which produces those podcasts. And she's a humanist chaplain. She runs pilgrimages and walking tours, exploring sacred reading and writing. Vanessa is obviously many things, some of which might seem in tension with each other. She's a chaplain and she's an atheist. At the same time, she calls herself 100% Jewish and says that she loves Judaism. So we started by asking about the interplay for her between atheism and Judaism. Here's what she said.
1: I really think that Judaism differently, certainly than Christianity and also several other religions, is considered an ethnicity, a race and a culture. You know, H- Hitler would call me a Jew. So I'm a Jew, right? Like I would be persecuted as a Jew, regardless of my beliefs. Um if I were to try to have a baby with another Ashkenazi Jew, we would have to get tested for Tay-Sachs. So there's just like a biological component of it. But also we feed the dog and then the kids and then ourselves and this house and like that <laughs> is Jewish law. I find that thinking about much of Jewish law to be really grounding. I think that the most important part of my atheism is that we have to try to end all suffering on this earth and in this life. And if I don't believe in an afterlife and if I don't believe in like, um, divine intervention, then I believe that the stakes of everyone ending suffering matters. Mm -hmm. Obviously some of the people in the world who've done the most to contribute to the end of suffering have been people of great faith It's just not the way that I can orient myself around theology. I I really don't know anyone who properly accounts for suffering through theology. I had the honor of being able to ask Marilyn Robinson that question once. And she, who's like a devout, beautiful Christian who has a relationship with God that I admire a lot, was like, oh, there is no proper theology of suffering.
0: What do you mean by that? Is that the idea that no religion can account for suffering in a way that feels entirely satisfying? Or do you mean something different?
1: That is exactly what I mean. I think Judaism handles suffering pretty well, right? Like at the end of a wedding, you break glass. And although there's no real understanding of where that tradition comes from, one of the theories is that you break glass to remind yourself that even on this joyous day of Simcha, you know, the world is broken, I just never, ever want to forget the world is broken.
2: It seems like, it seems to me like a particularly interesting choice for an atheist to decide to attend divinity school. So what drew you to it? And am I right that it's unusual? <laughs> yes, I think and hope it's becoming more common. But
1: yes, it was definitely strange. But what drew me to it, I think, was two things. One is that I worked in education for 10 years and it just became overwhelmingly clear to me that we know how to fix the education system in this country and that it is difficult, but actually quite simple. You invest in teachers and you pay them well and train them as if it is a job that really matters. And you pay money per student, irrespective of their class tax base. And like kids are going to learn and schools will improve. And we as a country just do not believe that poor children and black and brown children deserve to learn. We just don't. And that to me felt like a sole problem. There seems to be this like very retro, deeply Puritan idea that money comes to the good and people who are poor, somehow being punished for their ills. That just seemed like a soul, a deeply sad soul problem to me. And then the other thing, quite frankly, is just, it was 2009 when I decided to seriously start thinking about divinity school. I didn't start until 2012, but I'm a millennial who suddenly was like, oh, in the 2009 crash, I'm never going to be able to retire. Social security will be completely defunct by the time I'm 70. So I'm gonna to have to work until the day I die. I might as well do something I love to do. And I love to read, write, and chat. And divinity school seemed like a place where that was sort of the job.
0: Yeah. So going back to suffering, You said that you studied to be a chaplain because you wanted to, and I'm quoting you, sit with people during the difficult moments in their lives and bear witness to the world's suffering, the very suffering that I think God turns away from. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about the connection between your family history and this desire of yours?
1: Yeah. Um, So all four of my grandparents were Auschwitz survivors. And my parents are both refugees who ended up very comfortably in a Los Angeles suburb, but, you know, still can't afford home health care that my father needs because we have right like no inherited wealth because their parents got robbed. God did not interrupt the suffering of my grandparents in any way. And in fact, rather than, right, like rewarding a generation of suffering with like nothing but gifts for the next generation, the repercussions continue. Um so when I go to temple and like the first prayer, right, is the Amida, where you are like thanking God for his benevolence. I'm just like, nope, I don't see that at all. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I've been a bad friend a few times. Um, a friend of mine had cancer. And then while she was sick, her mother got cancer and her mother was so busy taking care of my friend that she didn't take care of herself. And the mother died and my friend survived. And I just like, didn't know how to be with her in her grief. And she felt like she was being a burden on all of her friends. And she didn't feel as though she had anywhere to go. And I regret that. And so I wanted to be trained in just sustaining relationships through
0: suffering. Yeah. It was during your time at Divinity School that you decided to try treating Jane Eyre as sacred. And I guess I have a a few, a bunch of questions. The first is why, you know, why then, why do it? What does it mean to treat something as sacred?
1: Yeah, the why then is really that I realized that I was about halfway through divinity school. Three years sounds like a really long time. I was like, I'm going to have three years to figure out what it means to be an atheist chaplain and learn how to pray and like learn how to fix the racism soul within all of us. Three years ought to do it. And then I was halfway through and I was like, I have learned none of that. I've learned a lot, but like, I am no closer to figuring out any of that. I mean, what happened, I had mono, so I had a fever, but my favorite professor was preaching really close to my dorm room. And so I was like able to walk even with my fever. And she was preaching on the Song of Solomon and she was preaching specifically on the piece of text that love is stronger than death. That moment of text reminded me of Jane Eyre in particular, Rochester saying, be my best earthly companion, which is a line that I love a great deal from Jane Eyre. And I was sitting in this church thinking about best earthly companion, which I would say is like quite an atheist way of looking at marriage. And I like nothing negative was triggered for me, right? Whereas like when the Is sung in temple. I picture all of my relatives who were saying the Shema as the gas came out of the showers. Mm -hmm. It is just like a very unfortunately like triggering prayer for me. And so I was like, "Ooh, I only have positive associations with Jane Eyre." And so I wrote to that professor, Stephanie Paulsell. Hey, this sounds weird, but like, can you please teach me how to pray? But instead of with the Torah, with Jane Eyre. And I think that that's actually like a very Jewish instinct rather than try to learn how to pray extemporaneously, learn how to pray with a text. Mm -hmm. And she's a Christian minister, but she said yes. And so we really spent a semester rereading Jane Eyre quite rigorously and doing some close reading. And then she just kept assigning me books to try to figure out what it meant to treat a text as sacred. Certainly part of traditionally treating a text as sacred is that a community and a culture and a history defines it as sacred. The Quran, if I were to say the Quran weren't sacred, which I would never say, but like a population of a billion people would like come together and defend it. Yeah. Um, And same with the Torah, right? Whereas if I'm to say Jane Eyre isn't sacred, no one is defending that. So we sort of had to put that part to the side and say, but what else makes a text sacred? And so with the help of, you know, Guigo II and Simone Weil and James Woods and several other thinkers, we sort of put together this list that you need faith, ritual, and community. Faith that the more time you'll spend with the text, the more gifts it gives you. Ritual in that you are going to keep going back to the text even on the days That you're not in the mood, or you feel that the text has betrayed you because you've realized how racist it is. It's in the case of Jader, and community at least one other person to sort of engage in this practice with you, so that the other two things stay possible. It's really just the gym buddy theory for community.
2: One thing I really admire about Vanessa is her refusal to turn away from certain things that are truly difficult. On the contrary, she dives in deeper. So, for example, because of the suffering of her family and others, she can't see God as benevolent. She sees the Shema as triggering, and that's a cornerstone prayer in Judaism. Some call it the most important Jewish prayer there is. A lot of people would run from faith in those circumstances, but Vanessa became a chaplain to try to figure out how to help others with suffering. That's just a quality that I really admire and not sure that I share it, but I kind of wish I did. She chose Jane Eyre as a gateway. And then she realized that Jane Eyre is partially, these are her words in the book, a racist argument for global imperialism, slavery, patriarchy, and missionaries. But rather than reject the text as a result, as many of us would, she learned how to be and stay uncomfortable with this text that she loves in many ways and also struggles with and finds abhorrent in many ways. So she examines it. She doesn't forgive it. She takes the bad with the good.
0: Yeah, it seems to me that in its imperfections, Jane Eyre is really no different from other sacred texts. It's full of contradictions. It's at times problematic. And I agree with Vanessa that the point of sacred texts, both religious ones like the Torah, for example, or secular ones like Jane Eyre, the point is to struggle with them and question them and learn from both what you admire and what you can't forgive.
2: I mean, I cannot tell you the number of times that I have sat next to Paul in synagogue and he's like flipping through the English translation of the Torah and pointing out pretty crazy passages to me, you know, women sold into marriage, all sorts of objectionable content. So yes, sacred texts are often quite complicated. Yes, um, yeah, to say so, the least. To say the
0: least. <laughs> More about and, that in a future episode. <laughs> right, right, right,
2: right. Speaking of complicated, I just wanted to flag, Vanessa is going to mention a character in a second from Jane Eyre. She refers to as Sinjin. That's a way of referring to St. John Rivers, who is a religious fanatic who turns out to be kind of a no fun jerk. Uh, He proposes to Jane late in the book and frames it as a favor to her. He also takes her in when she's really struggling. So that's why I say he's complicated. But I raise this because Vanessa will mention him and I wanted to give a little context for background.
0: I think he's worse than you're giving him credit for. <laughs> yeah. You're being very fair to him. <laughs> yeah, right. He's a total jerk. He proposes and says she should accept him because she's ugly and poor and no one else will ever want her. So, yeah, yeah we don't that's like that. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but before we talked with Vanessa about horrible Sinjin, we talked with her about a different topic. She shares in her book in an essay involving Little Women this story that's told by a Buddhist priest. Vanessa says. It's a story about a Japanese mom whose son was dying. The son told her it was all right that he was dying, that they would meet again in the Western paradise, the pure land of pure land Buddhism. Not heaven exactly, but an afterlife. And after her son died, the mom told the Buddhist priest, I don't even believe in the pure land, but I have to get there now. We asked Vanessa why she chose to share that story and what connection she sees it sharing with little women. Here's what she said.
1: What I like about the story, I think, is two things. One is that in my training, in my clinical pastoral education training, we just had one day shadowing a chaplain who did pediatric care for children who were dying, which is also very much about, obviously, parental care. She said that When you're doing chaplaincy with a child, you just follow the child. So if a child says, what do you think happens after I die? You respond, well, what do you think happens after you die? And no matter what the child says, as long as it's a positive story for them, you just say, I think that's right. And so if it's I ascend and go to the clouds, and I think I'll see my grandma and my dog there, you're like, absolutely, you will see your grandma and your dog there. Mm -hmm. And that's so much of taking care of the adults is helping them create rituals and so she told a story about a family who after their child died, wow, I'm so fun. Everyone invite me to your party. <laughs> but, like after their child passed away, they like went up the child's body partly for the sibling and said like I bless your toes and like kissed their toes and I bless your foot and kissed their foot. And you know, that's not a part of any religion. The chaplain sort of made it up on the spot as a ritual to say goodbye to this child. And I found that so empowering that like you can just create rituals of meaning. So that's what I in part love about the story is just what an exceptional mom, this woman is in the story. And that she intuitively sort of knew like you just follow your child. I also love that it's a story about like faith through grit. This woman does not believe in the Western paradise and just this love for her child. She's gonna try to find a way to get there. Um, There's obviously in Little Women, a great loss of a child with Beth March. And one of the, most beautiful moments of the book to me are that Marmee and Joe are both so grief stricken and there's still this feeling that they have to take care of one another. Neither of them turns inward in their grief and neither of them is like, well, I'm in more pain than you are. I lost my sister. No, I lost my daughter. There's just this genuine caretaking of one another that I find similarly full of that grit of faith.
0: So let's say listeners want to try using a book as a sacred text. I know you have a chapter with suggestions in your book Mm -hmm. and they should definitely reference that, but would you be willing to give a prelude for listeners who aren't familiar with your work? What kinds of steps should they take?
1: Absolutely. It's my favorite thing to talk about. I think that engaging in a relationship with a sacred text is something that takes years and hopefully even a lifetime. You want to be in conversation with that text. And so you should pick something that you already love, which is why a lot of my work is with Harry Potter. And by be in conversation with, I mean when you are in any sort of spiritual distress to turn to it and work with it in order for it to answer you and to have faith that it will give you gifts and will give you answers if you ask it rigorously. So that's the most important thing to me. And then the second thing that I recommend is finding someone who would be willing to do it with you. And maybe they don't want to do it as often or as rigorously or, you know, whatever it is, but I still think if you can, that is not necessary, but it is helpful. And then it's really about finding some spiritual practices and some parameters that work for you. It really is like an exercise routine. Mary Gordon, who's one of my favorite writers, reads Proust for five minutes every morning, or she did when I heard her give a talk in like 2008. Mm -hmm. I haven't caught up with her and her spiritual practices lately, but Whatever it is, if you have 10 minutes a day to like make your way through Harry Potter and then every quote that sparkles up at you that you find true or beautiful, you slowly copy into a journal. And then you reread the text that you've created with all of those special quotes, which is called a Florilegium. That is a way to sacredly engage with it. I outline a couple of sacred reading practices, sort of medieval Christian and Jewish practices that people can do that are really simple. They're just like four-step English class level practices. But really, it's just about reading and rereading and believing that it will keep giving you gifts and engaging with it with
2: commitment. Okay. In one of the sermons in your book, you talk about how your grandfather, who was in some ways a loving husband, at one time cheated on your grandmother so shamelessly that he actually brought his mistress to your brother's bar mitzvah photo shoot with your grandmother there. my God. So in the same sermon, you say, I'm going to quote you to you, love stories like Jane Eyre are part of the problem for many women. So the key is to read and reread the books until we realize that they are secret conversations warning us about good men. Jane Eyre is not about falling in love with Rochester. It's about how women need to be willing to break their own hearts in order to dispel the myths that patriarchy wants us to believe in order to enter into a relationship that is worthy of us. Oh, there's a lot there and I have a lot of questions. (laughs) So, why are love stories problematic for women and why do women need to be warned about good men?
1: First of all, I just want to say that love stories are problematic for women and also I read like 60 romance novels a year and I think that women know to expect great things from men and to say like you don't have to compromise on sinjin but can choose Rochester, right? So I think that they give us so many gifts. I think that they can also program within us beliefs that are harmful if we don't read them critically. And so I I think that capitalism wants to sell us big weddings and patriarchy wants to control women and credit card companies want you to put that dress on your credit card, right? Like there's so many forces that want our love lives to work in a certain way. And so I think that proving to yourself that you don't actually need those things can allow you to have them with more intention.
0: Do you think there's something about finding scripture in the books that matter most to you that appeals especially to younger generations or maybe that appeals differently to older and younger generations?
1: That's such a good question. I don't think so. My father who is 73, I think he has a sacred text. You know, he rereads War and Peace every couple of years and, you know, will, like, talk to us about mistakes and say, well, Andre made a mistake with Natasha, right? And, like, really lives in conversation with War and Peace. And my grandfather, I really think that my grandfather's religion, if not his sacred text, is the Holocaust. He just never... Stopped reading about it, you know, in his 90s. He was just always, always reading about it. And I think, you know, if you had talked to Mendel, I think he would have talked to you about the beauty of botany, right? Like, I think that this exists in many different forms, but I, I think it's always existed. I think people have always found spirituality in the beauty of the things that they live in close conversation with.
2: I love this idea of study, the study of botany in the case of Mendel, for example, as a kind of spiritual practice, something that you try your hardest to deeply understand. I will say that, like Vanessa's grandfather, I read a lot about the Holocaust, and it is harder for me to think of that as a spiritual study because it's so. Suffused with evil. But I suppose it is something I'm seeking to understand.
0: And I like thinking of a search for meaning as a kind of spirituality. And I like the idea of using a beloved novel as a basis for that search. I've been asking myself if there are books I can imagine taking on this way. And the summer book by Tove Janssen comes to mind, especially because of what it has to say about aging and acceptance and the natural world, and also dignity and compassion.
2: Yeah, we could do it together and we could keep a florilegium with all our pull quotes.
0: <laughs> yes, that is definitely my new favorite word. Florilegium. Florilegium, <laughs> you. And that
2: is it for this episode of the Book Dreams podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast and think someone else would too, please rate
0: and review us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player. Be sure to let us know if there's a book-related topic you've wondered about, and we'll try looking into it in a future episode. You can reach us for that reason or any other at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter at bookdreamspod and on Instagram at bookdreamspodcast. You can find Vanessa at vanessazoltan.com and on Twitter at Vanessa M. Zoltan.
2: Many thanks to our producer, Gianfranco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. You can find Eve at evieohallam.com and me at juliesternberg.com. And check out the podcast website, www.bookdreamspodcast.com. Until next time, happy book dreaming. Happy book dreaming.
0: listen to with